From the ED ECMO studios in San Diego, California, this is the ED ECMO podcast. So welcome to another episode of the ED ECMO podcast. This is episode 26. This is going to be the smack cage match, Belezo versus Ho. I'm Joe Belezo. And I'm Chris Ho. Well, Chris, Chris Ho is not my usual counterpart. Zach Shiner is not here right now. In his place, I have my good friend and colleague, Chris Ho. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and hello, ECMO groupies. <laughs> so Chris uh, joined me in uh, Chicago for Smack Chicago when I was asked by the Smack team to debate ECPR versus no ECPR. Actually, the title of the talk was ECPR is a step too far. And for those of you who listen to this podcast would know that it would be hard for me to realistically debate that aspect. So I was asked to find a debate partner who could realistically fight me in the course of arguing for or against ECPR. So then the question was, who do I have debate me. And so we scoured the world's literature for any other emergency doctor who routinely puts in ECMO and couldn't find anybody. So I turned to my very good friend, colleague, and at the time chairman of our department, Dr. Chris Ho. And Chris has probably put in as much or more ECMO cases on the, on the record books as I have. And so I don't think there's anybody who would be better suited to look at the positives and negatives of what we do than Chris. So uh, on to things. So first of all, uh, before we get to the debate, Chris, we just got done with a first timer for our reanimate conference. What was your impression of reanimate? I think that uh, the first reanimate conference really was something that exceeded anything that you or I or Zach or Scott really had envisioned. I think that what grew out of a small germ of idea to do ECMO training really grew into a monster that we did not expect it to be. And I think that the feedback has been universally overwhelming. There's a lot of hype about the next reanimate conference, which I'm sure you're going to talk about, um, but just really happy to be a part of that. And, um, you know, just uh, I thought that was a really great experience for people who are really interested in learning ECMO, developing ECMO programs. And from what I can tell, it's, uh, you know, no one is doing this. And you and Zach are the only guys who are putting this kind of training out there. So hats off to you. I appreciate that. You know, the atmosphere at Reanimate was unlike any conference I've ever been to that I can recall. Um, the amount of excitement and, um, God, the enthusiasm that was just throughout the entire event was amazing. Uh, I'm expecting that that's going to be the case as well for the next reanimate iteration, which is reanimate two, uh, September 13th, I'm sorry, September 12th and 13th, which will be here in San Diego, California. If you want to check that out, go on over to, uh, reanimateconference.com forward, forward slash register. Uh, Chris is going to be welcomed back for uh, a couple of things. First, he's going to do, again, the cannulation labs that he did, which were absolutely amazing. We had, um, we had, we had simulated pelvises with, uh, with blood vessels that you had to search under ultrasound guidance, and they were charged so you'd get a, a backflash. And uh, it, it was super realistic simulations for cannulation. And we have some surprises up our sleeve to make it even more difficult coming up. 
Reanimate 2. Okay, without further ado, we're on to the debate. This is Chris Ho versus Joe Belezzo. CECPR is a step too far. And if I'm not mistaken, Chris, I pretty much kicked your ass. Well, I think we should let your listeners be the judge of that. But, uh, you know, I welcome this opportunity because making fun of you, as you know, has been a lifelong passion of mine. And this was an opportunity for me to bring it to a wider audience. So I really just rejoiced in that. So our next statement for uh, the session uh, is ECPR a step too far. And our pro speaker is a Dr. Chris Ho, who is going to speak to us about it. He's an emergency physician from the University of California, San Diego. So, Chris, you have eight minutes. All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Ho. None of you have heard of me because I don't whore myself out as a so-called expert in ECMO like my colleague, Dr. Belezzo. I am the chief of emergency medicine, not at UCSD, but at Sharp Memorial Hospital in San Diego, which has apparently become the epicenter for resuscitative ECMO in the United States. So as it turns out, I am the department chief for Joe Belezzo and Zach Shiner's department. And as you know, these guys have become somewhat prominent evangelists for ED ECMO and ECPR. Unfortunately, like all evangelists, they assert all kinds of conclusions without any evidence. They even look like TV evangelists. (laughs) Now, ECMO in resuscitation is exciting. It is sexy, and it is fun to do. It is fun to do. But should we be doing it? That's a hard question to answer. Now, we are all at this conference because we love critical care and resuscitation. We all want to be at the forefront of saving lives. But ECMO is expensive. It is incredibly resource-intensive. It is logistically difficult. And there isn't really any great evidence that it accomplishes a damn thing. It's like TPA, except that instead of the American Academy of Neurology promoting it, you've got Joe Belezzo. So, to my mind, here are the areas of discussion. Does it work? Is it worth it? Can you actually get it done? And should we be doing it in the first place? Okay. So, Joe is for sure going to talk about his ECMO poster children, his ECMO poster children. He's going to talk about Ralph and Annie and Cassidy, and these are patients that essentially came back from the dead. And they have great stories, but this audience should know better than Joe Belezzo that anecdotes do not equal evidence. Okay? First, we have no idea what the inclusion or exclusion criteria for eCPR really are. In our shop, it really boils down to an ER doctor's decision based on nothing more than a gut feeling. Now, we certainly think about things like time down, we think about comorbidities, the age of the patient, and those kinds of things, but ultimately, we don't have hard and fast indications for eCPR. And the reason for that is simple. There isn't any good data, okay? Now, in an era in which we hold evidence-based medicine to be the ultimate benchmark of best practice, The evidence for ECMO simply isn't there, okay? And some pretty smart people have looked through the evidence, and the conclusion is clear. There are no studies that show absolute benefit of ECMO in either survival or quality of life. There are no RCTs that show that ECMO works. 
And so until the data comes out, these jack wagons in my department are touting this expensive, complicated therapy of unproven benefit. Okay? Let's talk about cost. ECMO is not cheap. Reanimating the dead is not inexpensive. Okay? The pumps alone in our shop cost almost a quarter million dollars. And I can think of about a thousand other things that my hospital needs to spend money on. When you factor in the consumables, the device maintenance, the supply chain, the ICU training and staff, the training program, the support service, the perfusionists, and the most expensive surgeons in the world, and you are talking some serious Benjamins. Study from Norway in 2010 stated that the average cost to put a patient on ECMO is over $70,000. The average hospital cost is over $200,000, and the average hospital stay is over 50 days. And so the conclusion from this study is that ECMO is a resource-demanding procedure. Yeah, no shit, okay? And this study is from Norway, And there aren't any good data from the United States, but I suspect that comparing European costs and U.S. costs is like comparing apples and BMWs. (laughs) A hospital in Philadelphia described the creation of their ECMO program in a 2015 article in Perfusion. Their year one cost alone was over $600,000. I like how Wallace described ECMO in his critique of the Caesar trial which is that ECMO will be a luxury commodity without high-volume use. It's a lot like Dr. Belezo's Harley-Davidson. It's flashy, it's expensive, but it's almost never used. And, and I will let the leather chaps speak for themselves. Okay. Putting a patient on ECMO is not easy, and I know because I've done it. Okay. Percutaneous cannulation of a dead fat guy is not for those with a questionable skill set or poor rectal tone. In our shop, we have screwed patients every way you can think of. Both catheters in the same vessel, backwalling the artery, inadvertent air embolism, accidental VV cannulation, accidental decannulation, you name it. Someone's got to run this circuit. When we did our first few cases, we had no idea how the circuit worked, much less let alone understand the concepts of flow rate and RPM and chatter and trying to juggle that cognitive load on top of resuscitating a pulsosapnic patient is a recipe for failure. You have to be able to bring a ridiculous amount of resources to bear on this patient. Putting someone on ECMO in our shop typically takes three ER doctors, our regular ER code team, two or three SICU nurses who are ECMO trained, as well as usually a cardiologist and a pulmonary critical care doctor. And it's just not realistic to expect that other institutions around the world are going to be able to deploy personnel like that. And then there's the issue of volume. Joe, when was the last time you put a patient on ECMO? I will tell you, it was more than a year ago. ELSO published a set of guidelines in 2010 in which they said, hey, if you haven't put a patient on pump in more than three months, you should go through a recertification process. All right, well, that's you, and that's me. So I did you a solid, and I looked for a training course, and I found one looks pretty good. It's called Reanimate San Diego. Hey, you know who's teaching that? Oh, you are, and I am. Problem solved. (laughs) All right, so... Let's talk about the ethics of eCPR. Any discussion of resuscitative ECMO is necessarily a discussion of -of end-of-life care. One of the things that we have to acknowledge is that most of these patients are going to die. The difficult case for us is going to be the young, healthy patient who is just arrested. And for obvious emotional reasons, the temptation is huge to go far beyond ordinary resuscitation and put the patient on ECMO. 
even when we believe that the chance for survival is fairly minimal. Okay? Because we cannot assess the degree of brain damage at the time of the resuscitation, I think that there's going to be a dangerous potential to overuse the therapy. And let's be honest, we practice medicine at a time in which we know we order too many tests, we do too many procedures, and we spend too much money. And we know ECMO is expensive, and we know it's fun, but what we don't know is, is it cost-effective, and will it be shown to actually improve outcomes in a meaningful way? Okay? Belezo is an invasivist. He is a hammer looking for a nail. Now, eCPR has certainly given him license to go hog wild, although I'm not sure that that's a great idea. And yes, we will occasionally pull off the miraculous save by throwing an astronomical amount of resources at a patient. But does that justify the expenditure of those resources for the handful of patients that we're actually going to help? Now, the theory of eCPR is great. Oh, this technology, it's a game changer. It's going to revolutionize the way that we do resuscitation. But the outcome data is sparse and unconvincing. Don't get me wrong. We have definitely had some impressive saves at our institution. I'm just not sure that our experience is going to be reproduced with more widespread use of ECMO around the world. Okay? From a position paper in 2010, eCLS is contraindicated in cases where risks and use of resources outweigh the chance of success. Well, if that's really true, then eCPR would be contraindicated 100% of the time. I think Chris has really introduced Joe Belezzo, who's obviously an expert in eCPR, from the same place. So go for it. Throughout the centuries, there were men who took the first steps down new roads, armed only with their vision. And while their goals differed, they all had this in common, that the steps were first, that the road was new, and the vision was unborrowed. And the response they received? Hatred. The great creators, the thinkers, the artists, the scientists, the innovators stood alone against the men of their time. Every great new invention was denounced and every great new thought was opposed. The men of unborrowed vision pushed forward. They fought, they struggled, they paid, but they won. Say a quote from Ayn Rand from The Fountainhead. And the point here is this. Innovation has to start somewhere. Where would William Stept and Peter Saffer have been in the 1970s if they hadn't pushed forward, if they hadn't innovated with modern rapid sequence intubation? They had no RCT. There was no such thing as an RCT, randomized controlled trial in the 1970s. The point is, innovation has to start somewhere. Did you know that there's a lot of things you do right now that have, have no basis, no scientific basis? There is no RCT showing that appendectomy works for appendicitis. There's no RCT showing that antibiotics work for intra-abdominal infections. And there's no RCT showing that blood transfusions work in hemorrhagic shock. Taking it a step further, there are studies that show that there's no benefit for giving aspirin to prevent a first MI, for giving antivirals and Bell's palsy, for giving heparin for ACS, or ACLS drugs during cardiac arrest. Now, 
Am I going to sit up here and tell you that eCPR should be pushed forward with absolutely no evidentiary basis? Of course not. But innovation has to start somewhere, and the randomized controlled trials are coming. Unfortunately, my colleague, Dr. Ho, here has chosen to take a rather lowbrow, sophomoric approach to this, to this debate. But I'm above that, and I have to maintain a certain amount of respect for my department chair. So... I'm going to take the next step and talk about this, what I'm going to refer to as Dr. Ho's nutty brown bullshit concerns. (laughs) Concern number one, ECMO doesn't work. Bullshit. For out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, a study just done, the SAVE-J trial, over 46 centers and over three years, over 850 patients, comparing traditional CPR, having a neurologically intact survival rate of 1.9%, versus ECMO CPR, 13.7%. And what about in-hospital cardiac arrest? The data is much more robust there. Over the course of several decades, the known survival rate for in-hospital cardiac arrest is 17%. Add ECMO CPR to that mix, and your numbers jump to 27 to 38%, depending on who you read. And let's not forget this little gem that I published in 2012 in the Journal of Resuscitation, showing that emergency doctors could successfully put patients on bypass. So the question is, does it work? I think there's compelling evidence so far that says that it does work, but the RCTs are still pending. I'll tell you what doesn't work is Dr. Ho in a pimp outfit. <laughs> That's what doesn't, and what's funny about this is he's probably the only guy at the party that was both the pimp and the hoe. Dr. Ho's nutty brown bullshit concern number two, it costs too much. Okay, let's, take, let's, let's break this down. ECMO costs about 1,500 bucks. Now yes, it costs $100,000 for the pump and it costs us about $500,000 a year for the nursing staff. But if you already have an ECMO program in house and if you're doing heart surgery, you probably do, then those costs are fixed and your only cost are the disposables, which is that number right there, about $1,500 to give your patient a shot. Next, logistics. ECMO is too hard to do, I can't do ECMO. The reality is, is ECMO is fairly simple. It's a large central, central line in the femoral artery and a central line in the femoral vein. Your patient comes in, in cardiac arrest, you put in a line in the femoral artery, line in the femoral vein. You already do this. This is basic emergency medicine. The videos are. And then assuming your patient has not gained return of spontaneous circulation, and assuming you have the intestinal fortitude that this guy clearly lacks, then you put in a couple of dilators, You put a cannula in the artery, a cannula in the vein, you connect the tubing up and you turn on a pump. You push a button and turn a dial and that's it. It's fairly simple. And lastly, Dr. Ho talked about ethics. Look, 8% of your cardiac arrest patients, your out of hospital cardiac arrest patients are gonna die. 90 are gonna survive. 92%, 92% of your patients are gonna die. And if we take that a step further, I don't start ECMO on a patient until they've failed ACLS. Let me say that again. We don't start ECMO until the patient's failed ACLS. 
So we're not starting with 8%, we're starting with 0%. They're 100% dead. How could that possibly be unethical? Let me give you some cases. This was a 77-year-old male. This was Lynn. He was an ex-Navy SEAL who came in with tearing chest pain going through to his back. He had an aortic dissection, aortic transection, pericardial tamponade, and he completely dissected out his aortic valve. We did a pericardiocentesis, got off 800 cc's, no return of spontaneous circulation. I put Lynn on ECMO, the surgeons took him to the operating room, they reseeded his aortic valve, grafted his arch, and this guy leaves the hospital neurologically intact. Is that unethical? Next, 20-year-old female diabetic is out shopping for wedding dresses with her fiancé and forgets to take her insulin. And her fiancé finds her the next morning... uh, unresponsive. Medics are called to the scene and they find Cassidy in ventricular fibrillation arrest because her potassium was 10 and her pH was 6.5 and we couldn't correct it fast enough. So we put Cassidy on ECMO after failed ACLS as a bridge to electrolyte correction. Is that unethical? She went on, she got married and she's now expecting her first child. Now, Chris showed you a video of, uh, of this lady. This is Annie. What Chris, Chris failed to mention was that this was his patient. He failed to diagnose her pulmonary embolism, called it atrial fibrillation, and put her on an elevator where, of course, she arrested. Now, thankfully, Chris, I was there to save Chris's ass on this one again. And so Annie got over 68 minutes of CPR before I did veno-arterial ECMO on her. The video's buffering, but just give me a second. Just notice here, I don't think you see Dr. Ho over here on the left. You don't see him body-checking me out of the way in, in the name of cost or logistics or ethics or efficacy, do you? And of course, Annie did walk out of the hospital neuro-intact, as you saw earlier, Is it unethical to put this lady on bypass? Today, Chris and I talked to you about some of the major controversies surrounding eCPR and ECMO. Cost, logistics, ethics, or efficacy. Does ECMO work? I think ECMO is a winner. It's going to be up to you to decide on your own. Now, I started this with a quote, and I'm going to end this with a quote. This one from Australian-American author, Anonymous, who said that when you're dead, you don't care because you're dead. It's everyone else who suffers. It's the same if you're stupid. All right. So, Joe... Since you love quotes, I have one for you. Arguing with an idiot is like playing chess with a pigeon. It'll shit all over the board and then strut around like it won. (laughs) All right. So you all know, I've known Joe Belezzo for almost 20 years. And let me tell you this. The only thing that he's truly an expert on are overpriced cigars and bourbon. And since he seems to get his feelings hurt kind of easily, we're not even going to revisit his love of Ayn Rand and leather chaps. All right. Let's set the record straight. Do you all know how many patients 
Joe Belezzo is put on ECMO. Nine patients. That is right, nine fucking patients. All right? You treat nine patients and now you're a world's expert? Seriously? I mean, I've seen Star Wars like nine times, but you don't see me touring the country as a Star Wars expert. I'm not running a Star Wars blog and a Star Wars podcast. But you know what I have done? <laughs> I've put 13 patients on ECMO. 13 patients. Ho, 13. Belezo, 9. Just saying. <laughs> uh. All right. In all seriousness, I am tremendously proud of the work that my department has done in the field of resuscitative ECMO. And I believe that eCPR is indeed the future of resuscitation. But there's a lot of work to be done in the field. This is a field in its infancy, and we don't know yet how or when to best use this technology. I think that we should push the envelope of what is possible in medicine, but I think we need to be careful about how we proceed. To be sure, I think resuscitative ECMO raises a lot of difficult questions about healthcare expenditures, rationing of resources, cost effectiveness, and end-of-life ethics. And Joe and I have found ourselves in the position where we have made the difficult decision to not put a patient on ECMO, even when we really wanted to, because we concluded that this patient simply wasn't salvageable. With so much interest in this field, and with it being a discussion a topic of discussion among the top resuscitationists in the world. I look forward to a future in medicine in which we answer these questions and we save more lives because we figure out how to make eCPR work. And with that, Joe and I thank you for your attention. What's... I got one for you. I don't need one. I'm good. Well, yes. Rob, do we have anything sensible? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> From the Twitter sphere, unlikely. Um, so, loads of comments. A couple of questions. One uh, from Bree Perry. How, to avoid, how do we avoid candidating patients with profound neurological injury? Well, you know, again, I think the big challenge for us is that it's very hard for us to know at the moment of resuscitation what is the degree of neurologic injury and what's the chance of recovery. And I think that kind of traditional thinking has gone out the window because some of our first cases, we had patients that went pulses and apneic for more than an hour that we then resuscitated and then left the hospital neurologically intact. And it was those early successes that really made us rethink how we were going to run our program. And so a lot of, I think, the current thinking on what is optimal intra-arrest management, should we be doing intra-arrest cooling and so forth, is that neuroprotective? I think there's a lot of stuff for us to work out. We've looked at using NEARS and some other kinds of neuroprognostication, but the technology isn't, just isn't there yet. And I, I would just like to add to that in that... I made it sound like ECMO is really easy to do, and there's a lot of things that are very difficult about... He's undoing his argument. <laughs> it's true, but it's a, it's a difficult process, but there's nothing, absolutely nothing more difficult than that question right there is who to and who not to put on. You can have very strict inclusion and exclusion criterion, and we do. And even then, it's really, really difficult. Did they really have a witness arrest? Did they not? Did they really have a witness downtime? Did they not? Did they really get CPR? Did they not? We don't know. And so it is a tough question. And if we have a neuroprognosticator out there, that's what we're looking for. Okay. And there's another question from Dave Tingey. 
what effect does a new eCPR program have on delivery of EMS services? Ooh. So, so <laughs> it's a good question. For, that, for, that is more of a political question? <laughs> I think, in my opinion, it is more of a political question than a uh, sort of uh, evidence or systems question. But um, I can answer that really quickly in that... Um, I, I think our, our experience has produced a certain wave of enthusiasm amongst the EMS community, and we have had a couple of patients who have been transported to our facility who, would have been transpor- who were going to be transported elsewhere, and they came to us instead because we actually do now have the ability to offer an intervention that nobody else can offer, and it's not, an intervention that's different from what can be offered in the field. So I don't know yet. It's still, that information is still coming. We're still trying to get a feel for that. We're only a few years into this, and some culture is changing in the EMS community right now. Okay, the answer up. Do you want another one? Go. Okay, so from the VPEC team, can the debaters discuss the anticoagulation risks in eCPR? Sure. So uh, the, two, the entire circuit is bioline coated. It's coated with a heparin-bonded coating that uh, is in the tubing, all the PVC tubing that, that, that go, the blood flows through, and then the patient is always anticoagulated with 5,000 cc's of heparin, and I do that before I put in the big ECMO cannulas. One of the things that, one of the situations we have found ourselves in is we have occasionally been in a situation where we have been put to a decision, do we give systemic TPA as part of the resuscitation, or do we go to ECMO? Because I think, I don't, as far as I'm aware, we have never given TPA and then put the catheters in. That would be... No, we've not done that in the ER, but that has been done upstairs. yeah, Yeah. Okay, well, I think in the goodness of time, we might uh, have a vote. So who is going to support Chris and the eCPR is a step too far? Ooh. And in the negative for Joe. Oh, my goodness. There you go. Joe, I think you won.